Taibai asked Baso in all earnestness, What is Buddha? Baso answered, The very mind is Buddha. Hello and welcome to a new type of episode of Bright On Buddhism, called the Koan series. In the Koan series, we will read and discuss famous koans used by real Buddhist monks from such sources as the Blue Cliff Record, the Gateless Gate, the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, and many others. Full disclosure, this is not how koans are used or ought to be used in Buddhist practice, but I'm here to give some extra context and meaning to some of these koans so that you might see them in a new light and gain some new or deeper meaning from them than you did before. I hope you enjoy. Today's koan is known in English as Mind is Buddha, and it comes to us from the Kon Yamada translation of the Gateless Gate, which is known as the Wu Men Guan in Chinese, or the Mumon Kan in Japanese. If you remember from before, this is a collection of 48 Chan or Zen koans compiled in the early 13th century by Chinese Zen master Wu Men Hui Kai. This is one of the most important compilations of koans in all of Chan or Zen Buddhism, the other being the Blue Cliff Record, which was compiled in 1125 in Song Dynasty China. Mind is Buddha is the 30th case in this collection of koans, and it looks simple and mundane at first, but it is really deceptive. Anybody who has been listening to this show for a while now should have a couple of reasons why this might be deceptive and have a couple of questions about it. How do we reconcile this claim, mind is Buddha, with what we know about the nature of mind in Buddhism, with non-self, and with Buddha nature? These questions open us up to the hidden complexity and specificity of this claim, and it allows us to analyze and discuss it in context. This also allows us to analyze the dialogue between Taibai and Baso so that we can understand why exactly Baso answers in the way that he did. At the same time, this koan is quite simple. Taibai, who has ostensibly committed himself to this path of practice and study, has seen the Buddha and Buddhahood itself mentioned and discussed and explained several times by several different people in several different ways at several different times. Naturally, he has the question, how do we understand the nature of this guy we are all talking about all the time, who we call Buddha? He is clearly not a regular guy, so what is he? Additionally, he likely had a foundational education in the basic stuff, just, you know, like the centuries of debate regarding the fundamental nature of mind in this Sanskrit, Tibetan, and classical Chinese scriptural and commentarial tradition that we modern Western scholars have looked back upon and collectively called Buddhism. That's a joke, but it is true that he was likely aware of the implications of the doctrine of non-self on the nature of mind. To be clear, non-self, known as anatman in Sanskrit, means that there is no unchanging something. No soul, no unchanging aspect or factor of our existence, no still point in the constantly changing universe. That being the case, it is already diluted to say something like, my mind, or your mind, or our mind. There is no self to possess a piece of something called mind, much less a self to possess this entire thing called mind. As a Zen student, it is likely that Tai Bai was also aware of Buddha nature. We have talked about this extensively on this show. This is an idea that has many iterations and interpretations throughout the history of Mahayana Buddhism, but all interpretations and iterations of this idea share at the very least one thing, and that is their understanding of sentient beings as being of a nature, at least in some small part, of the dormant or unrealized Buddha. Thus, our job is to realize this inherent nature into Buddhahood somehow. 
This could mean returning to our originally enlightened nature, which we all have, as the Chan and Zen thinkers believe, or this could mean understanding that Buddhahood is inherently possible for at least a portion of the population of sentient beings, as the much more conservative interpretations hold. Now, without a doubt, I have to mention that historically, discussions about the details and implications of this are very, very many. Is this doctrine simply the potentiality for Buddhahood? Is it the standing reality of Buddhahood? Is it the nature of causality, which can be understood as absolutely containing one or more outcomes that result in Buddhahood? These are all debates that we will not discuss today, but you should know that they are out there. That being the case, this deceptively simple koan turns into quite an interpretively complex doctrinal claim. There are many different ways to interpret its meaning and its context in the doctrines, and only some of those are quote-unquote right in the sense that they are interpretations that are commonly held by the Chan schools. In order to start one off on the way to interpreting and analyzing this koan, I would like to present a discussion of the doctrine of non-self, the nature of mind, and Buddha nature in Chan Buddhism as they relate to this particular koan. Let's get started with the doctrine of non-self. This ought to be familiar to us as it is one of the three marks of existence that is pointed at by the Four Noble Truths. Thus, it's one of the most basic doctrines in all of Buddhism. Today, we can talk in a little bit more detail about the context in which this doctrine of non-self arose in Buddhism in order to better understand the meaning and implications of it, and in order to enrich our understanding. In India during the life of the Buddha, there was a considerable amount of religious innovation going on. This is near the end of what is called the Vedic period, which is held to have been between 1500 and 500 BCE. And during this time period, the prevailing notion was that people individually possessed an Atman, which was a piece of the universal, this universal being known as Brahman. And that by realizing one's Dharma, according to their social class and their stage of life, they could realize and understand the unity between their Atman and the universal Brahman. Dharma in this stage of history was understood as duty and as the order of the universe according to the caste system and the progressive stages of one's life laid out by the ashrama system. As you might know, historically the caste system was an understanding of the structure of society in terms of four plus one classes. At the very top were the Brahmins. This is Brahman, but instead of an A at the end, there's an I. And these Brahmins were scholar priests who were very politically and spiritually powerful in their communities. Below them is the Kshatriya caste, which contained the warriors. Below them were the Vaishyas, or the merchants and artisans. These were the commercial types. Below them were the Shudras, or the servants, or the slaves. And below them, but not part of this grander caste system, were the Dalits, or the untouchables. These are people who were street sweepers, they cleaned up human and animal waste, they dealt with dead bodies, etc. In fact, it is this class of individuals from where we get the term outcast, because they were outside of the caste system. As you can see, each of these classes has a prescribed social role that a person in them would fill. Shudras are farm workers, or their servants, or their slaves. Vaishyas are merchants and craftsmen and landowners. Kshatriyas are rulers and warriors. And Brahmins are priests. They fulfill the ritual and religious functions of the community. Therefore, somebody who is born into this caste system in one of these classes, they must engage in that social activity in order to fulfill their dharma. The other layer of this is the four ashramas, which are the four stages of one's life. The four ashrama system holds that the first stage of one's life is from when they are born until they are about the age of 25, 
And during that stage, they are prescribed to be a student. They're supposed to be learning what it is that they do according to their family enterprise or their clan enterprise. The second stage is the householder life, where they take on that role as either a merchant or as a ruler or as a Brahmin, and they also marry and have their own family and so on. This lasts from age 25 to about 50. The third stage is the retired life, where they stop working and they pass on the enterprise of the family to their descendants, and this lasts until one is about 75, 50 to 75 years old. And the final stage is from 72, 75 years old until they die, and this is whenever they're prescribed to become a renunciant or a spiritual seeker. The idea is that by living according to this scheme of social class and life stages, one would attain unity with the universal whole, known as Brahman, and thus achieve liberation from the cycle of birth and death that we call samsara. This liberation was called moksha, and while it was not the only goal of the early Hindu tradition, it is a very, very important one for individuals. As for what is relevant to the development of non-self as it pertains to this episode, the Vedic Hindus of this time period believed that this Atman was an eternal and indestructible something, and that it was one little piece of the infinite Brahman. The Buddha then said that there is no such Atman, there is no still point, no unchanging something, and no permanent indestructible existence of anything at all. He said that the nature of reality is not Atman, but is instead an Atman. In this way, the Buddha turned everything on its head. First, the Buddha turned his back on his caste, the Kshatriya, or warrior-slash-ruler class, and he also violated the ashrama system by renouncing instead of having a householder's life during his regular adulthood. Second, his whole idea of there being no Atman was no doubt controversial. We have to remember that in ancient Indian society, there was no division between religion, the state, and society as a whole. Those with power in any of those domains, as we understand them today, had power in all three. There was also no such thing as secularity, no distinct category known as religion as opposed to government and politics, and there was also no religious plurality for the most part. Thus, the structure of the state and society was determined by what we would now call a religious text, and the nature of phenomenal reality was understood in the context of what that text said. I emphasize this over and over again because in the modern and Western context, many of us understand and value the separation of church and state, and we understand the categorical differences between the two. And we also perceive religious plurality, and as a society, we do not hold any of those religious texts to determine social or phenomenal reality. We might do so on an individual basis, but for the most part, we don't do that as a collective. That is to say that governance, the structure of society, and the nature of the world as we know it, are not all singularly answered by any religious text. This is all to build up to how radical the Buddha's ideas were. For 1,000 years or so before the life of the Buddha, the Vedic texts and their adherents had been saying that the sky was blue, and here comes Shakyamuni Buddha to say that it's actually purple. It's about as radical as Galileo turning to the Catholic Church and saying that the world revolves around the sun instead of the other way around. After believing that there is an indestructible soul that is a piece of infinity for 1,000 years, here comes Shakyamuni Buddha, not saying that the soul is destructible as opposed to indestructible, not saying that it is not a piece of infinity, not even saying that it is related to Brahman in any way, but instead he's saying that there is not even a soul to begin with. 
That claim is very contrary to the fundamental order of religion and society in ancient India, so we ought not forget that as we move along through this story. So how does all of that relate to the koan at hand? Well, we are very used to thinking that we have a self, and that self possesses a mind. So when Basso says, mind is Buddha, we might be led to think that that means to say that what we perceive to be our individual mind is Buddha. This is not what's being said at all here, because nobody has their own individualized mind. Nor is it saying that there is one singular infinite mind that each of us has a part of, because there is no such infinite mind, like the Vedic Hindus of Buddhist times claimed. And there is also not a self to possess that peace of mind. Rather, mind is one of the properties of the empty phenomenal world, as we will discuss here. Now that we've discussed this question of non-self, we can ask the question, what is the nature of mind in Buddhism? In the West, we are all still defined by René Descartes and his famous Cartesian dualism, which can be summed up to claim that the individual is a mind and possesses a body. The mind is something metaphysically independent of the body. It is the ghost in the machine, so to speak. In this scheme, the functions of the mind and the functions of the body are very different and also mutually exclusive. The mind is the site of awareness of the body, the self, the world around us, and is the place where thought and ideation and perception and memory take place, whereas the body is where physical processes take place, such as digestion, metabolism, circulation, and other unconscious actions. This has some useful implications. It implies that if there can be illnesses of the body, such as cancer, asthma, so on and so forth, then there can be illnesses of the mind, like depression and anxiety, and so on. If there are illnesses for both, there ought to be treatments and medicines for both. At the time of Descartes, this was a very transformative implication because when people exhibited signs of what we now call mental illness, previously they were simply labeled as insane or otherwise a burden on society and were just placed somewhere where they wouldn't be in the way. Their illness went untreated and they often got worse because of how they were handled by society. And they were likely miserable for their entire lives. However, there are also some immutable facts that we know now that debunk Cartesian dualism. One example is that we know for sure that chronic mental illness can cause chronic physical illness. Prolonged, increased exposure to stress hormones like cortisol can damage organ tissues and shorten our lives and decrease our quality of life. This is a clear link between mind and body that demonstrates the interdependence between the two. But regardless, I brought this up as context for how we are going to talk about the mind in Buddhism. First off, the Cartesian concept of mind is very different from the Buddhist concept of mind. In Buddhism, there is no sight in which we can say, this house is the thing called self, because there is no self. Whereas in Cartesian dualism, the mind is the site of selfhood. If there is no self, then there is no possibility of the possession of selfhood. In order for the mind to have or to possess a body, it would have to be a site of self, which it is not. Mind and body are separate aggregations that come together and stick together and are prolonged due to karmic acts. The nature of mind is determined entirely by one's actions. Actions in this case covers external behaviors and also thoughts and ideas as well. That is because the dualism of external and internal relies on thinking that there is a border where self ends and the rest of the world begins. In Buddhism, there is no such border because there is no such thing as self. So we have established that the mind is the coming together of the results of our karmic acts. Now let's establish what it does. In Cartesian dualism, the mind is where we do cognition and perception and memory. We have awareness of body, we have memory, we have the perception of the world around us, and we have thoughts and ideas about all these things. 
This also does not quite match up with the Buddhist conception of mind. First off, it is a delusion to believe that there is a self to possess a mind which covers all of these things. Second, it's a delusion to think that mind is constituted entirely of awareness of body, awareness of phenomena, thoughts, feelings, and so on. Rather, as I said, mind is a karmically defined aggregation. Thus, historically, some have come to call it a storehouse. This is a storehouse of all of our cognition experience, and all of our cognition experience is karmic in nature until we purify that cognition experience, direct it towards enlightenment or otherwise towards Buddhahood, and empty it out and do away with it entirely. However, at the same time, this same cognition experience is a property of the world itself. The awareness, perception, and cognition that this mind undergoes constantly is a property of the phenomenal reality around us. That is to say that the sentient being which exists in the phenomenal world's ability to be aware of itself is a property of that world. I know that this is confusing, but what it does is it displaces awareness and consciousness away from the individual and away from the collective and divorces it from any possible concept of self, be it an individual concept or a plural concept of self. So if mind is a karmically defined aggregation that functions as a storehouse of all this karmic stuff we have collected over our infinite lifetimes, then it is nothing like this Cartesian mind, and it becomes a much more complicated claim to say that that mind itself, which is inherently karmically defined, is Buddha. Buddha himself is not karmically defined, and so we have to understand what's going on here whenever Basso makes the claim that mind is Buddha. If we understand this mind as being this karmically defined storehouse of karmic stuff, then we see that the goal of Buddhism seems to be to work away from the aggregation of that mind and from the karmic storage of that mind and toward the disaggregation of that mind. Because we're hoping to no longer act karmically like the Buddha, and we're also aiming to dump out this storehouse mind and to do away with it entirely. If that is the case, why do we say that the very mind is Buddha? After a discussion of Buddha nature, it might become a little bit clearer. We've talked extensively about different iterations of thought relating to Buddha nature and Buddhism. For more on it, see previous episodes of our regular Bright on Buddhism show or also of the Koan series. I won't go over those iterations in detail again, but instead I'll jump right into the final iteration of this Buddha nature thought before we get to original enlightenment, which regards Buddha nature as being an inherent property of reality. So in this iteration of thought, everything in the entire phenomenal world including non-sentient beings like trees, rocks, mountains, rivers, and more, are all possessed of Buddha nature. This is similar to the idea that I mentioned just a second ago, that everything in the phenomenal world is possessed of mind, inasmuch as mind is awareness of phenomenal reality itself. The reason we can say this is because everything in the phenomenal world is cognizable by mind. It's able to be acted upon karmically by mind, and so on. So, do we mean to say that even trees can become Buddhas in the future? No, not in this case. In this case, we mean to say that the entire phenomenal world points the viewer toward Buddhahood, provided that they have the eye with which to see that that is how the world works. This is a bit of a circular argument, as you can see. As long as you can see that this is how the world works, then that's how the world works for you. If you don't see it that way, then it doesn't work for you that way. Regardless of that, with the correct perception, then everything in the phenomenal world is possessed of Buddha nature, and it is all always pointing us toward Buddhahood. This is all very distinct from original enlightenment, which argues that every sentient being is originally enlightened and that they must 
undergo some constant practice or study in order to re-realize that enlightenment in the world. Remember that earlier we pointed to debates about whether Buddha nature is inherent potentiality or if it is a reality of the world itself, so on and so forth. And this particular iteration of Buddha nature thought regards all reality as being possessed of the potentiality for Buddha nature and also pointing toward the reality of it. This is similar to a lot of the discussions we've had about suchness in the past. Suchness is the utmost reality of a something, the utmost trueness of a something that transcends all other characteristics about that something. And that something, that suchness, is equated with, in this case, the nature of Buddhahood. So if we need the correct perception for the world to work this way for us, then how do we get that correct perception? This is the question that leads to the conclusion that the very mind itself is Buddha nature. In the event that mind is not Buddha nature, then everyone only has the ability to see the regular spectrum of colors, and Buddha nature is a whole other wavelength, which would make it impossible for us to ever perceive that quality of reality, and would prevent us from ever being able to be pointed in the right direction by it. That being the case, it stands to reason that both all of phenomenal reality, as we perceive it and understand it, and also we ourselves must be possessed of this common Buddha nature, this singular and unified Buddha nature that allows us to perceive that as long as we practice and study and meditate. So we have gotten to the point where we can say that all mind is Buddha nature. We are one step away from saying that mind is Buddha. We just have to cover one more thing. Remember that one of the biggest discussions in Buddhism relating to Buddha nature is whether it represents a potentiality or a reality. If we believe that it is a potentiality, that it could happen in the future, then we see that it is an optimistic way of looking at the world that argues that every sentient being, if they try hard enough, can become a Buddha in the future. In this scheme, we cannot believe that mind is Buddha, we can only believe that it has the potential to be Buddha somehow. This is a perfectly valid way to believe the world to be, but it does not make Basso's claim make sense. If we believe that Buddha nature is a standing reality, then we can believe that the mind is Buddha. You might be wondering how this is different from the original enlightenment hypothesis, which argues that everybody is inherently enlightened and must work back to get to that original state. And we're actually very close to that idea here, but we're not quite there. Mind is Buddha is actually one of the arguments in favor of original enlightenment, but original enlightenment is a later development than mind is Buddha. That being the case, mind is Buddha does not fully encapsulate the argument in original enlightenment thought. However, we can say that both the mind is Buddha claim and original enlightenment are present in this koan, and we ought to understand how they are related and where they are deployed in the plot of the koan. But before that, we should address the question, which is still open, of how one can attain Buddhahood itself in the scheme of mind is Buddha. If the mind is already Buddha, do we have to empty it out like I mentioned before when I discussed the nature of mind? To recap, I mentioned that the mind was an aggregate storehouse of karmic stuff, and the way to reach enlightenment was to purify bad, maximize good, and try to empty out and do away with the whole thing. If mind is Buddha, then emptying it out sounds bad. It sounds like you're emptying yourself out of Buddha or Buddha nature. Buddha is the part that we want. We don't want to get rid of that. However, this is actually a misinterpretation to say that emptying out the karmic storehouse is emptying ourselves out of Buddha. 
When we say that mind is Buddha, we are not saying that the karmic storehouse itself is literally Buddha. We are saying that the entire phenomenal world is Dharma. Let's go back to our discussions of skillful means and the Vimalakirti Sutra. You remember that the Mahayana views the role of the Bodhisattva, according to this Vimalakirti Sutra, as going where the suffering is in order to liberate sentient beings there, rather than transferring all this merit to meritorious beings who don't actually need it. We even mentioned that individuals can be hidden bodhisattvas and thus partake in and perpetuate all of this desire and attachment as a means of teaching. If an individual comes to fully know the nature of suffering, then they are part of the way to understanding the nature of the opposite. This is part of what's being pointed at here whenever Basso says mind is Buddha. The mind is Buddha because if one fully and correctly understands the nature of mind, then they are already starting to be quite advanced on the path to understanding the nature of Buddha. Then, once they correctly aim to empty it out of desire, attachment, and therefore karma, then they are doing what the Buddha does. Here is where I think Mumon's commentary comes in very handy. He writes, If you grasp it on the spot, you wear the Buddha's clothes, eat the Buddha's food, speak the Buddha's words, do the Buddha's deeds, you are the Buddha himself. This interpretation also lends credence to the esoteric Buddhist understanding of Buddhahood that we have discussed before. We've mentioned that one of the many goals of esoteric Buddhism is to attain Buddhahood in this very body, in this very moment, by undergoing mind-to-mind -mind transmission of the Dharma, by uttering sacred words of the Buddha in the form of mantra, by doing the poses of the Buddha in the form of mudra, and by realizing the Buddha's land in your own, in the form of mandala. You'll even remember that everything in the entire world, as we understand it, is pointing toward the Dharma, and is itself the Dharma being expounded by Vairachana from himself to himself for his own enjoyment. That's a very complicated scheme that we don't need to revisit in its entirety here, but you should understand that is influencing our understanding of why mind is Buddha. Because even though the mind is inherently a karmically dubious, if not karmically bad thing to have, then it's still pointing towards Buddhahood, Buddha nature, and the Dharma itself because even bad stuff is pointing towards that. As long as you can understand what is good and what is bad through this experiential learning, then you can start to see what is the Dharma, what is good, etc. This all gracefully explains a great deal of the thought behind Basso's claim, mind is Buddha. But it does not explain why this was the answer given to Tai Bai when he asked, what is Buddha? He did not ask, what is mind, or else this would all be wrapped up nicely given what I've just explained. Instead, Taibai asked, what is Buddha? This is one of the final and most subtle folds in this koan, but once we unfold it, I think the whole thing clicks into place. I think that the rest of Mumon's commentary on this case can help us shed some light on the answer to why Basso said mind is Buddha to Taibai whenever he asked, what is Buddha? Mumon continues, Though this may be so, Taibai has, alas, misled not a few people into mistaking the mark on the balance for the weight itself. How can he realize that even the mere mention of the word Buddha should make a man rinse his mouth for three days? If one is such a man, when he hears someone say, the very mind is Buddha, he will cover his ears and run away. What does this mean? When I read that, my initial interpretation was that Taibai had asked a wrong question, and that Mumon says here that there is a discrepancy between Taibai's utterance of the word Buddha and Buddhahood itself, and that by uttering it, Taibai has betrayed his own deep-seated delusions. In fact, somebody who is dispossessed of those same delusions would hear Basso's response, and he would run away with his ears covered. Why is that? 
This is where we see original enlightenment, or even original Buddhahood, being explained in the text. Does a Buddha ask what Buddhahood is? Clearly not. So Tai by asking that betrays that he is not a Buddha. Similarly, a Buddha knows the difference between the name for a thing and the thing itself. There is nothing in the word Buddha that is constituted of Buddhahood itself. The word blue is not itself the color blue. The word water is not drinkable. The picture of a rice cake, a metaphor in which the rice cake is enlightenment, which is often used in Zen Buddhism, it is not the rice cake itself. So if you eat the picture of the rice cake, you are eating a painting. You're not partaking of actual food. Therefore, no answer that Taibai could get in response to his question would even begin to approach the answer to what he is really asking. Taibai asked, what is blue? And Basso said, blue is an experience of mind. He did not say, sky is blue or ocean is blue, because blueness is an experience of mind and blueness does not account for the reality of the sky or the ocean. That is why Mumon says that Taibai has misled people into mistaking the mark on the balance for the weight itself. We must not get deluded in the words and miss the thing. We must not get engrossed in the map and miss the territory. We must remember that Buddhahood is an inherent property of all reality, and words can point us toward it, but they cannot be a substitute for it. So tying all of this together, we can see that this is one of the more complicated koans we've seen so far because of a few reasons. One is that Basso's answer needs a significant amount of explanation and unpacking. Another is that we need to understand why he gave that particular answer to tie by a specific question. Another is that it points at a critique of language and yet is a piece of literature that is used for meditation and study in the tradition. That all being the case, it can be hard to actually get a hold of what's going on here. I could be entirely and totally wrong, and if I am, I hope to hear from you, but I think that understanding what is going on in this koan begins with understanding non-self and mind and Buddha nature and how they're all related. Then you can start to see the move that Basso is making, and you can see the plot of the koan unfold before you. Taibai is betraying his ignorance, and Basso is trying to use his own skillful means to point Taibai in the correct direction. Ultimately, it works, and Taibai is said to have reached deep enlightenment, and he went to meditate in the mountains for much of the rest of his career. As always, the historicity of this specific dialogue is likely dubious at best, but Basso and Taibai were actually real figures. Basso is the Japanese name for the Dharma grandson of the sixth patriarch Huinung, and in Chinese he's known as Mazu Daoyi. Taibai is also quite famous. If you remember our previous episode, Gute's One Finger, Gute's master was Master Tenryu, and Master Tenryu's master was actually none other than Taibai, so these characters are all connected here. To close, I think that this koan is useful, if a bit advanced, if it is revisited frequently, as it opens up for the reader like a flower over time. First, it seems to only cover one or two concepts, but as you come back to it, you see more and more of the Zen or Chan Buddhist framework open up to you every single time. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.